to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. This week we're talking to game designer and podcaster Luke of Games from the Wildwood and the Wonderful Feelings First podcast. This was a great chat covering queerness in games and other media, folklore and being a professional GM for children, as well as informing us of the correct ludology of the term American Freeform. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're talking to Luke. Hi there, Luke, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. Would you like to take a minute to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role-playing game scene? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Luke. You can find me on Twitter at Wildwoods Games. I am a former professional GM for children, a game designer, a game consultant. I did some freelance editing at one point. I have a podcast, and that's pretty much me. I think people who are familiar with this podcast may also be familiar with yours, as we sort of run in the same indie circles. Do you want to talk a little bit about Feelings First? Yeah, so uh, Feelings First is a queer uh, actual play podcast that I am the creative director, I guess, of. Uh, We play games that are kind of uh, relationship-focused and intimate. We are currently in the middle of producing a season of Masks. Oh, your season of masks is really good. Yeah, we played Under Hollow Hills previously. I am currently deep in pre-production for a future season that I cannot talk about. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> we are going to be playing Blades in the Dark, and that is all I will oh, say. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, we're big fans of Blades in the Dark here and all of its various spin-offs, so that's pretty fantastic. I will definitely look forward to a queer version of Blades in the Dark. <laughs> And not like a girl boss feminism version, right? Like this isn't like, oh, the blue coats are good because they're gay now, which no, thank you. <laughs> have you listened to the Magpies before? I have. Yes. We had Re from the Magpies last year and, you know, I love that podcast. That's one of my favorites. Something towards that energy might be cool. <laughs> I am lucky that I get to listen to podcasts at work. And so I like ran through the first season of the Magpies and like, I want to say about three days. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's it's so good. It's so good to listen to. But Feelings First is also very, very cool. You started with some games that I really enjoy. I think um, Monster Hearts was the first one. Yeah, there was like an abortive kind of half season of Monster Hearts. Oh, no, it was so good, though. Like, it was really cool to leave it on that cliffhanger, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I could say we planned that, uh, but... Uh, and then moving on to other games like uh, Dream Askew, I think you played quite briefly and that was that was a real blast yeah, i loved there that there was a short little chunk of that it was interesting too because the book wasn't out yet so we were stuck working off just the little like 16 page playtest kit that had come out oh i guess that's right yeah yeah i guess um, i think i started listening just before you you did that so i think i probably caught up to it just as you were finishing off that season yeah i think like in hindsight Having now, like, read Dream Askew at length and designed a number of blogging outside blogging games, you know, if we if we had our time again, there's probably some things I'd do slightly differently. Sure. But I'm still quite, I'm still quite proud of that. I thought it went Oh, no, well. it was really good. I enjoyed it. And then Under Hollow Hills, which, again, you were playing off the playtest documents, I guess. Yeah. My great regret is that all of the new GM-facing tools that Vincent and Meg have written are really fun. Yes, they are. And I didn't <laughs> get to play with them, which is a, a deep tragedy. 
I love all the stuff that's been released for Under Hollow Hills so far, especially the kind of ancillary stuff that Meg and Vincent have made and given to patron backers who are like sworn to secrecy, but it's all super fun. The Wolf King's son, I'm like so eager to get to a table with someone. I think it'd be great. Absolutely. And then into Masks, which is a kind of traditional-ish <laughs> podcast fair, if you like. Yeah, and I... F- I finally got to take a break and not have to run games and not have to write blurbs for episodes or anything. That was uh, that was thrilling. I just got to take it easy. <laughs> is it all recorded now? It is. We wrapped recording, I want to say either March or April. And so now we're just trapped in the edited versus recorded uh, delay gulf. The editing struggle bus, as I like to call it. Those are all cool games, and then there's Blades in the Dark coming up as well. I always ask this when podcasters come on, but do you have a feel for what makes a particularly good game for actual play? That is a... That's an interesting question. <laughs> I like to ask the interesting ones. I think it's tricky because so much of it depends on the form. Mm-hmm. Like, a game that is going to suit our friends at the table is not necessarily a game that will suit a critical role or a dimension 20 sure you know they all have their own both like in a very production focused sense like friends at the table and dimension 20 are both pre-recorded critical role is a live sh- you know like there's differences there yeah how long is an episode there's all those very like material differences and then also just like theme and kind of like uh intention yeah and so i feel like we kind of have a sense of what qualifies a game as like you know, this is a thing that we would consider playing on feelings first. And that's mostly about does this game produce characters with narrative depth and narrative breadth? Yes. That is system generated. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that, like, you know, not to be a parody of an indie designer and immediately begin dunking on Dungeons and Dragons. But, like, <laughs> D&D really doesn't ask you to make very many expressive choices after character creation happens. No, and I feel we should be fair and say that players often do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Typically the people who make five-page backstories. Yeah, players are doing a lot of the work. One of my goals for Feelings First is, like, I don't want us to be having to do that heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. We're already doing enough work trying to make a podcast and trying to edit a podcast if the game is not actively contributing, then it can fuck right off. Yeah, I feel like that's what a lot of people I've interviewed have said, you know, if the system isn't doing the hard parts that perhaps the players aren't necessarily super dedicated to, then that can be quite tricky. I mean, you have a kind of a couple of additional levels as well, is that you're often trying to tell stories that are maybe more queer and trans focused than other podcasts. Is that how you see yourselves? Yeah, and I think the part of it too is like, we're not just queer in the sense that like all of the cast happen to incidentally be queer or that all of our characters will probably be queer, but like we are queer in the political sense. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. The reason we chose Under Hollow Hills is because I think that is a game that does a lot of really interesting stuff with gender and plays around with that really interestingly. Yeah. It is a game that is really allergic to binaries in a way that I personally feel really compelled by. Yeah, absolutely. A game where you play cops, like going to masks, right? Like a game where you play the Justice League is never going to interest us because like we're not interested in what if now it's women who are, you know, like dropping bombs on the third world 
a win for feminism. Yes. It is interesting then that you're moving into Blades in the Dark, which I guess is kind of, it's not explicitly queer, but it's explicitly... Anti-establishment, I would say, yeah. That does lend itself quite well to subculture and... Outsider perspectives. Exactly. I don't think it's giving too much away to say that we're not looking at running any of the core crew types. Hmm. Now that is interesting. Blades in the Dark interests me a lot as a designer in the way that, like, a bunch of people have started building orthogonally within the setting. Mm-hmm. Sean yeah. was like, here's, the, here's Vigilantes, and John was, like, doing, like, Sherlock Holmes shit. And yeah. Sean was like, here's being, like, violent revolutionaries trying to overthrow the Imperium. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, other people have, have done variations on this. I think there's, like, oh, you play, like, a rooftop, a rooftop soccer team crew playbook, <laughs> which is fucking sick as hell. Okay, that's highly unusual. The one that I really want to play is actually the Ink Rakes. Yeah. The, uh, the journalists. That sounds really, really interesting. I, I would absolutely love to join a game where somebody <laughs> was going to do Ink Rake stuff. Yeah, all I can say is, like, We're also not interested in falling into the trap that I think Blades can a little bit, which is like, ooh, isn't it cool that we're involved in organized crime? And that is the major issue. But I I spoke quite a lot to people in the Philippines recently about how they play Blades in the Dark. And there, it always becomes, let's destroy the state rather than let's be organized criminals. And I feel, maybe I read this subtext because I'm already quite a leftist. But I feel like this game is so implicitly and explicitly anti-establishment that you could never be in it purely for self-gain. It would never kind of lend itself to an emergent narrative. I mean, I would, I would point out that the, the original Blades AP, right? Like the Blood Letters game. Yeah. Never turned, right? Like the closest you got to anti-establishment is, hey, let's blow up the Crow's Tower so we can become the new gang in charge in Six Towers. Hmm. That, game pretty straightforwardly remained about just trying to claw your way you know it, it stayed the wire the whole way through okay it's a good point yeah yeah that's that's less what we're interested in doing. that sounds good and i'm gonna look forward to that and i'm not gonna make you tell us any more about it there's a hidden conceit that i i want to keep up my sleeve uh as long as possible because then it will be all the more exciting exactly when I hear the big reveal we want yeah. a fun surprise so um what what sort of time scale can we expect for that is that next year yeah it's a great question <laughs> Ashley and Finbar, who handle most of our production stuff, have been in various versions of Lockdown Hell in the UK. So, like, I wouldn't venture to guess how long it will be. I, I think next year is a reasonable guess. Well, you know, let's look out for that. And please, everybody, go and listen to Feelings first, because it is really, really cool, and you definitely won't regret it. It's an excellent podcast. At one point, we do a regicide as a play within a play. Do you know what? Actually, I remember listening to that episode as I was, maybe I was cycling home, and I just thought, this is amazing. <laughs> I just want everybody to go and listen to this. This is praxis. And it's also super cool. <laughs> it's just very clever the way that you handled that whole arc. It was really it was really neat. I had very little to do with it. All I did was set up the pieces on the chessboard and watch my players uh, knock them all over. Under Hollow Hills is so good for that. Um, it's, it's a like, oh, GM, just create a bunch of like quite interesting, potentially cool character types and actual characters as well. And then watch how your players mess them up in as amusing ways as possible. And also it's a circus. What is not to love about this game? <laughs> the, the way in which it like really invites the GM to, in a very real sense, become an audience, I think is one of my like favorite parts of it. One of its most crucial lines is just where it says, and as the GM, you can roll too. Why shouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> 
It's like, that's great. Thanks for that. <laughs> I've been beating a drum for like, ev- like ever since I read the first playtest materials about the ways in which Under Hollow Hills, I think, represents a really revolutionary change in a bunch of the core dynamics that people associate with Powered by the Apocalypse. Yeah, absolutely. When that starts to be grasped and when the game comes out for real, I think we're going to start to see like a wave of games that are hacks of Under Hollow Hills rather than hacks of Apocalypse World. I've already got one, even if no one else does. <laughs> I thought so. Uh, and I think it's going to be really interesting. There's kind of not been that new revolutionary step change in the way we we make games since maybe Forge in the Dark. Maybe that's a bit unfair to No Dice No Masters. Yeah, I'd say Belonging Outside Belonging probably. I, I think the success of Wonder Home qualifies. You're right, actually. Uh, no Dice No Masters is like a reasonably big moment. <laughs> Maybe I'll drop this whole discourse, <laughs> but it is definitely going to be, you know, a big step change and it's so exciting to see it. And it's been really cool to watch along, you know, it's kind of a privilege to be part of the Patreon campaign there and, you know, seeing how the play kits have evolved over time. And then there's the Kickstarter and now we're seeing the final materials coming out and it's going to be, it's going to be really good. Yeah. For real, everyone, go back Vincent's Patreon. It is like genuinely the best value for money patreon in the rpg scene yes it is and you get to be on lumpler games discord server now which is really nice Mm. because it's extremely chill but also some very serious game designers have chats there so that's cool as well you mentioned a few other things there in your personal introduction you mentioned being a games designer do you want to tell us about some of the projects you maybe are known for or have coming up ah the idea of being known. Ooh. I feel like it is reasonably fair to say that, like, of my currently existent games, Grand Guignol is probably the one that has had the most penetration and the most, like, success. Right. Maybe not, like, strictly speaking in number. I would have to check. <laughs> it, when I, like, go around and I'm, like, I, like, hear people talk about, like, my games that they've played. I think Grand Guignol is normally the winner. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that game then? It's, um, I'm not super familiar with it. Um, I have at least heard of it. So the story of Grand Guignol kind of starts in two separate places. And one of them is somehow, by accident, in my time at university, as I did various English courses to you know finish my degree, I ended up writing something like six or eight essays about how queer the gothic is. Like, at no point did I take a course that was about that. It just kept coming up sideways. And so that was one half of it. Yeah. And then the other half of it was I watched uh, Penny Dreadful. Look, that was a show, it had some problems. I'm the first to say that. But it was also just like, it was such a lush, such an evocative, such a like fucking cool show. Yeah, yeah. Canon bisexuality in a Victorian setting, which like wildly fucking unusual with some really like great interpretations of classic literary characters and my brain was just like why is there not a game for playing penny dreadful and also that game should be even queerer (laughs) yeah because that's the victorian gothic who was it i spoke to about gothic or interpreting things gothically it was john garrett um earlier this year and Mm. we, we spoke at length about the gothic john was talking about it being a lens rather than a genre. I feel like that's mm. kind of what you're talking about here. And also you're talking about using queer as a lens for exploring, well, what is it? I mean, what what do you play when you play Grand Guignol? Yeah, I mean, like my big observation, I think, is that like 
I look at the late Gothic. I'm talking about Dracula, I'm talking about Jekyll and Hyde, I'm talking about The Portrait of Dorian Gray, I'm talking about The Lost Stradivarius, Camilla, a bunch of these kind of like later Gothic works, but also Frankenstein because I think it shares some key DNA. I look at them and I just see that like so often in this space, gender is the site in which like supernatural horror is rooted. The horror is all about a failure to correctly perform normative gender. Yeah. Whether that's gender overall or whether that's reproduction or whether that's relationships variously. And so I was like, what if I wrote a game where you play queer monsters, queer sexy monsters? (laughs) Okay. But it's not monster hearts because the goal of the game is not how like sexual and how fucked up can we make this? It is, I suppose, a game about like finding community and Finding self-acceptance and, like, breaking out of restrictive, regressive societal norms. Okay, yeah. When you're a queer monster. Okay. And so there's a, you know, there's a playbook about being a werewolf where, like, the idea of having this beast inside you that has unspeakable desires, right, like, that becomes a metaphor for being queer. And there is a playbook for being a vampire hunter where I'm, like... You know, if I were a queer vampire hunter, like, what is the monster that I'm going after? And it is, of course, the many, like, institutional ways that homophobia is weaponized against queer people, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Who is, who is the monster that you're chasing? Is it the judge who sentenced you? Is it the doctor who institutionalized you? Is it the priest who condemned you? Like, who's the monster? You pick and then go fuck them up and feel kind of cathartic about it. <laughs> I mean, that does sound fun. It's very interesting. I don't know if it's particularly reflective of, my, of the corner of the scene that I'm particularly involved with. But, you know, we come across these recurring themes so often when I'm interviewing people. I like the idea of we have the mutant metaphor, for instance, that, that mm. came from Sahani's game Exceptionals. We have the idea of using the gothic to explore gender and societal pressure which you're talking about here but it is also something that um mitchell salmon talked about with his game the modern prometheus which is uh, also mm. about frankenstein to some extent and well, not to some extent in fact is directly inspired by frankenstein you know there's, there's all this this idea of kind of using the metaphor of monsters to explore issues around gender and sexuality and coming of age i think that's that's really interesting and I don't know if it's particularly, it is kind of an indie thing, but I don't know if it's like one of indie's big shticks at the moment or whether that's just reflective of <laughs> my kind of narrow view of the scene. I think in part also it is just kind of like, it is a very outsider experience, right? Like, Right, yeah. To, you know, to speak from my own experience, like queer people, we've always been told, you know, in a historical sense, like that we are monstrous and that we are other and that we are, you know, perverse and have to be kept in control and all of these kind of like narratives that dovetail with exactly the kind of things that are said in dominant discourse narratives and in normative media about monsters. Right, And yeah. so I think, it, you know, there is no real surprise that the queer identification with the monster is so strong. There's an essay that Avery cites in the like Monster Hearts reading list. Uh-huh. It is, I think, all about, like, trans-feminine gorgons. Yeah. That is just, like, the most fucking brutal, incredible uh, piece of writing. I'm sort of wondering whether or not now that, like, all monster media is, in fact, referencing an otherness. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we, if we really want to, like, get philosophical about it, right, like, monstrum in the Latin simply refers to a rupture in the natural order. Yeah. And monstrum is not only like the figure of the monster itself, but also 
the signs that precede it and the after, you know, the way, the ways in which it continues to scar the social order. Monsters have always been a way to kind of like deal with violations to, you know, normative and hegemonic social orders. Yeah. I would, I would posit anyway. I, I think that's valid. I mean, that's, that's really interesting to kind of look at it from, from that perspective to kind of say, well, how can we examine what we dislike about society? Well, let's look at it through the vein of something that we can actually be quite detached from. You know, we can say, well, you know, monsters aren't real, don't you? <laughs> and, and so this is just a story. It's a way to, I think, to exorcise and cultural anxiety mm. to look at Dracula, for instance, right? Like, the horror of Dracula is that Dracula is variously queer, hyper-masculine, like, more so than British men, and here to steal your women. Eastern European, kind of Jewish-coded, and, like, wealthy and obsessed with land acquisition. Yeah. These all kinds of things that Victorians were terrified of. Yes. And the novel, like, raises the ominous specter, the anxious vision of terrible Dracula, and then he is killed. Yes. We have defeated the dark forces of the world, and now, you know, we can, <laughs> for one night, stop worrying about the imminent collapse of the British Empire and yeah. feel smug in our self-satisfied assurance that we are, in fact, the middle of the world. It is sort of validating from the opposite perspective, then, isn't it? It's uh, validating the dominant, the main central part of the culture, you know, what, what people expect you to, <laughs> to come out and say. So Queers writing about monsters, I think, comes out of, like, yes, I agree, Dorian Gray is queer. Like, I'm picking up what you're putting down, uh, Oscar Wilde. Though that's not such a good example, because there we have a queer author. But, you know, like, Robert Louis Stevenson, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yes, Dr. Jekyll is a gay man. I hear you. I just don't agree with you that that's a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe that's why those are becoming more and more kind of explored topics nowadays, uh, is because it's no longer such a such an issue to write about those things and such an issue to talk about those things publicly. So... I think it's kind of a, a reclamation thing, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. like reclaiming language while also it's reclaiming the kind of othering stories that have always been there and have made people feel uncomfortable. It's to say, well, actually, you know what? Jacqueline Hyde is a cool experience. <laughs> Let's talk about that more. Let's make that sound even better than it already does. So Grand Guignol then, that's the kind of story that you're telling, you know, you're looking at queer monsters doing cool stuff, which may or may not involve killing or otherwise doing away with their detractors and like what's not to like about that kind of experience you know there's a setting element in it where i build off marks uh and that quote about the vampiric nature of capital oh we're down with that <laughs> the vampires in this game are like they're capitalists like yes landlords and vampires are treated as the same thing that's the same setting element it's all about the like boundless thirst of capitalism as a thing that you have to contend with <laughs> and again you're hitting on a theme that we talked about with olivia hill about i hunt the real monster is capitalism <laughs> it's another kind of phrase that we bandy about <laughs> with wantonness is kind of like what things can we actually represent as monsters here what things that can we actually make seem scary well capitalism is a good target mm, yeah capitalism modernism the past yes and conservatism and all those sorts of things that you know Weesh. that we actually kind of feel dreadful about <laughs> let's make them into monsters instead but then make the monsters the actual protagonists i like it i like it a lot it's a cool theme long may it continue yeah, and so, you know, like, that game was published at some point. I have <laughs> lost track of the passage of time. In the past. In the past, at some point. 
Uh, and I'm recently in the middle of kind of reworking that for second edition because I have a publisher who is interested in it, who I cannot name. Cool. You know, a proper printed version of that that is expanded Ooh. and has some new stuff is going to be coming out at some point. That sounds brilliant. And I, I really want people to keep an eye out for that. Do we have a time scale for that or is that just when it happens? Summer next year is the vague brilliant. idea, but like, you know, timelines are fuzzy and like, who can say? It's the future. Who knows? Fantastic. Please keep your eye out for that. And have you got other projects coming up in the next couple of years that are... Yeah, I've got an Underhollow Hills hack. Excellent. It's pretty close now. So, and we also are, I suspect, pretty close to Underhollow Hills, you know, dropping in PDF release at the time of this recording. Yeah. So it will probably be out or imminently out at the time that this is posted. And that's called To Tread the Spiral Path. And it is a game about exiled Irish heroes questing through the other world <gasps> to bloody their hands with blasphemous work on behalf of a high king who has dubiously promised them, you know, their re-entry into society if they do his dirty work. Okay, that sounds cool. Does he mean it? Mm, I think you would be uh, right to be skeptical. <laughs> Uh, let's find out. I mean, is this a kind of game that <laughs> that is also intended to end in regicide? Who knows? It's interesting that you say this because it is part of, I have this very wanky concept. <laughs> we talked about it earlier with Blades, this idea that like, you know, you're playing Blades, your crew is developing a social conscience and all of a sudden you realize you're not playing Assassins anymore and you shift over into like the vigilantes mode of Blades. Yeah. Or like you start off playing a blue coat crew and you decide actually following the rules is too hard. We're going to solve this mystery from like in the underworld and you go and become a cult or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so similarly, Tread the Spiral Path is just one of a planned like uh three games so there's going to be like a triskelion type kind of motif oh and the one that is currently actively being written is called bloodstains the peaceful field and it is a game about irish uh warrior exiles fighting a bloody revolutionary path across ireland to the throne of the high king to overthrow him so <laughs> that sounds really really good yes your game of spiral path could well end with you kind of like shifting which zine you're playing from and uh doing a little spot of regicide <laughs> spot of regicide you know just a little crime just a smidge <laughs> that's cool another game that kind of sort of leans into that switching around at the last minute is um 316 carnage among the stars mm. which is kind of the kind of lampooning half of starship troopers yeah but then at the end you realize that it's all horrible and it kind of becomes alien colonial marines instead and you come back home and destroy the planet and that is a very cool game, which I, I'm probably not spoiling it for anyone by telling them that because I think it's a sort of well-known conceit at this time. You know, it's so cool that you can kind of take a colonialist narrative like going out there and killing stuff and taking their stuff on behalf of somebody else and then realising halfway through the game that that is an awful thing to do and then moving into, as you said, a little bit of regicide on the side. I'm, I'm very down with that kind of narrative. <laughs> yeah, so that's, you know, that's coming out like any week now i just have to do a last spot of playtesting and then it'll be excellent it should be ready uh, i've got another bob game that i'm like slowly pottering away at i don't really have a timeline it's called harvest mm -hmm. and it is a folk horror game where we play to find out whose blood will be spilled to feed the land and who will f hold the knife very cool that sounds good as well. Yeah. Like folk horror. Yeah, it's in, it's kind of inspired mechanically by Sleepaway uh -huh. and a lot of the stuff that Jammy uh, is doing with kind of more structured, you know, Bob with acts, clear, distinct acts. 
Up with acts, cool. Uh, and yeah, you know, it is inspired by the Wicker Man, Apostle, Midsommar, you know, a bunch of like the the kind of core pieces there. Uh, it's that kind of horror that I, I like. That game's an interesting one because, so I stupidly decided in that game that I wasn't going to have any setting elements. And instead, each character would have a setting element-like thing called a secret yeah. that they were carrying around with them. And so like... The Stranger, which is the playbook for being, like, the protagonist of The Wicker Man. Either you are here on behalf of the, like, royal army as a spy, and so your secret is that, and you've got the, you know, that force kind of backing you up. Yeah. Or you're here as a missionary on behalf of the church, and you've got that force backing you up. Or, as a child, you drowned in a river, and the spirit of the Willow Witch saved your life, and so she is backing you up. Right. And so the problem, of course, with this is that in, I have to write three times as many setting elements. That is unfortunate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just chipping slowly away at this game. You know, we're up to like five and 15. Oh, gosh. I only have one playbook and three setting elements left to go, but I'm in no rush to like tie myself to the keyboard. It'll be done when it's done. I kind of love the setting elements side of belonging outside belonging games because they just tie the setting to the to the mechanics mm. of the game kind of so neatly. And I sort of love the tactility of picking up the sheets in front of you you know and sharing them around that kind of feels very wholesome that idea of sharing artifacts of play is very much something i'm super keen on it's a nice thing to do and that's one of the reasons i love belonging outside belonging games that's a long way of saying that i'm kind of excited to see more of them and yours in particular i suppose my other like big game that i'm currently working on that i just put out a playtest kit for uh is tales from the low cantrefs it's a good name <laughs> thank you uh, it took an endless agonizing amount of time to come up with <laughs> all the best projects do yeah and so this is like my first like attempt at like a really proper like big scale like this is going to be like a pbta game like a masks sized or a you know apocalypse world sized game oh right so yeah a couple of hundred pages yeah a considerable game yeah that's been in the works for 18 months it's probably not going to be published for another couple of years but, you know, it, it is playtesting. If you go to my Twitter, you can find a pinned uh, tweet with a link to the playtesting signups for that. Awesome. And that is a game about coming-of-age hearth fantasy in the tradition of Sabriel and the Chronicles of Prydain and these kind of works of low folkloric fantasy about young people figuring out who they are and what their responsibilities are against the backdrop of, like, a world that is slowly darkening as Apocalypse descends. Wow. <laughs> that sounds brilliant um I'm, I'm not sort of super familiar with the source material you're talking about there but it sounds you know folkloric fantasy is very much the kind of thing that i think is very interesting i love to see folklore in ttrpgs at the moment i just think that's a great mood because it, it feels much more of the people than i don't know your typical high fantasy fair. Let me tell you, uh, Harvest is going to be the game for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it definitely I'm will. I'm just be, like, yeah. ah, yes. How many weird British sleeping giants and folk traditions involving hammering nails into things to trap ghosts can I stuff in one game? <laughs> I sort of talked about this with some of the RPGC creators I interviewed in the last couple of months, and we were talking about how the kind of cultural hegemony that Dungeons and Dragons and in particular, but mm. Tolkien-esque Western European fantasy. The effect that that has on the scene is not only to reduce how much non-European folklore appears in games 
but it also kind of reduces how much actual interesting English folklore appears in games. Yes. That is a kind of a crime because I, I feel like Warhammer fantasy role-playing and Dungeons and Dragons, like the big ones in the scene where you have trolls and goblins and like that kind of dull stuff kind of forgets that there is this amazing long history of English and Welsh and Scottish folklore and Irish folklore as well, um, as you alluded to before, which is much more interesting. And actually tying it back to what we were talking about before, Under Hollow Hills really nails that. Absolutely excruciatingly nails that. Under Hollow Hills is kind of an exquisite representation of fairy legend, which is incredible, really. And and with specificity too. Like I think the thing is, for me, I think it's not even so much that, like, this stuff gets overlooked, but that works like, again, not to pick on Dungeons and Dragons, but, like, there is nothing actually European about Dungeons and Dragons. The structural qualities of the setting of Dungeons and Dragons aren't feudal at all. It's a border town western that has a thin veneer of, like, pseudo-medieval kind of constructed Europeanness homogenizing like whiteness mm. kind of spread over the top as aesthetic anytime i see a game that's like oh this is european fantasy i'm like the construct of europeanness and whiteness is a fantasy sit down clear your thoughts a little what kind of european fantasy yes is this spanish which part of spain like dig in a little give me some specifics yeah yeah and yeah. this is why like tales from the low cantrefs is like very grounded in welsh folklore you know and i like draws a lot of that from right like the chronicles of prydain are very heavily inspired by welsh folklore yeah to tread the spiral path is about irish mythology it's not about british mythology even it's certainly not quote-unquote like western fantasy game it is about ireland yeah unapologetically in the same way that harvest is about britain and more specifically about kind of like England in the middle-ish. <laughs> Which is where I live. <laughs> so yeah, that's cool. And with fantasy games, that is always my goal. Because yeah. like, I find that so much more satisfying. I find that so much more interesting. Yeah. I think in a weird kind of a way, it helps to unpick that weird mirage of like a homogenized like European fantasiness. Yeah. If we all kind of like poke at the bits of it that are specific and are weird and are ours and kind of reclaim that cultural heritage in a kind of specific way and reconnect with it. Yes, absolutely. The contrary can be true as well, can't it? Like you talk about these specific regions. I think the classic example of what I'm sort of trying to get across is Curse of Strahd, which makes these kind of horrible, horrible mm. assumptions about what Eastern European folklore is as basically just being completely racist. The specificity of it has to also be authentic yeah. What it sounds like is because you are clearly quite a learned person when it comes to folklore, the, your ability to be specific and authentic is like significantly greater than even can be achieved by most people with the biggest budget and the most sensitivity readers. So I think that kind of experience is what people are perhaps looking for as well when they buy into these specific folklore settings i like to hope so you know <laughs> absolutely yeah also because it means when i finally finish low cantrips i have a vague sense on the horizon of what like the next like big full-scale project is yeah the thing is there's a bunch of the pieces of like the premise of game of thrones that like don't suck it's just executed really badly and george <laughs> r. r martin massively overrates how much he knows about history 
and like doesn't understand leftist Marxist materialist analysis of history and society. And so I'm like, what if like Game of Thrones and Assassin's Apprentice and like the realm of the Elderlings stuff and like early Anglo-Saxon like kingdom building and like they all yeah. get mushed together and we take like a Marxist approach to analyze it. We'll see what comes of it. That sounds amazing as well. Like what's not to like about all of those <laughs> particular setting elements? Well, look, everybody, please go and check out uh, Luke's games and Wild Games. They're great. And if you like folklore, you're going to love them a lot. So uh... I guarantee they will be sad. They will be spooky. They will be sincere. And they will probably be quite specific. That's my guarantee. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, the last thing that you talked about in your introduction as well was about being a... A former professional GM for children. Yeah, I spent 10 years working at a not-for-profit childcare service that used role-playing games to teach kids about history and mythology and literature. I mean, that's truly incredible. Yeah, and that was like my full... It wasn't a full-time job, but like that was my job that paid the bills and paid the rent for the last five of those 10 years. That's amazing. I mean, I, I don't even know how you kind of get into that role, but that sounds just absolutely by chance well when you're 10 years old your mother <laughs> brings you along to a childcare service it's really interesting we, we sort of spoke about it with um another one of my guests how about you can use role-playing games to explore things that young people are interested in or that young people ought to be interested in because it's a way to kind of separate yourself from that experience whilst also experiencing it more deeply than as if you were reading it or absorbing it in another kind of media. So, I, I mean, I guess that's the kind of angle that you're coming at it from. It makes what can seem like quite distant and quite inaccessible subjects, you know, by making them participatory, you make them feel kind of quite real and immediate. Yeah, yeah. It also is a really powerful tool to do a thing that the teaching of history, I would say, just based on like even my own like schooling experience, I think we do a lot better nowadays than we did. It can be very easy to think about people in the past as like an alien species. Yes. People have always been people. And people's drives and motivations are always the same. Yeah, even if it wasn't written down, I guarantee you people in the past still made dirty jokes. They still <laughs> didn't always want to work. They still had arguments. They still had memes. Like, none of these urges are, like, unique to us in the contemporary era. No, absolutely not. And so by putting people in the shoes of people from the past, almost especially because they're kids, there's no artifice to it, and they don't feel that kind of very adult urge to, like, you know, I don't want a metagame. I'm going to play a character who's strictly different from myself and maintain very strong separation between in-character and out of, you know, like... <laughs> yes, yeah. Kids aren't studied enough. They don't really give a shit. They're basically just playing themselves filtered through a character anyway. Yes, yeah. And so that gives, I think, a really powerful sense of empathy and understanding that, yeah, people in the past were at the end of the day, and ultimately really just people. Yeah, they're the same as us. Even if they were in extraordinary circumstances or had very different beliefs or, you know, whatever. And I think if more, you know, grown-ups were to kind of appreciate that, I think it would be a lot easier to, well, study history and understand, like, the decisions of the past. They're not super challenging concepts at the end of the day. And, like, I think being able to teach that as a way of also developing empathy in children, that's very cool. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. <laughs> it was a really, a really cool, a really rewarding job. I'm like, some of my former students have gone on to become game designers who are like now like, oh, wow. you know, like publishing their first games on <laughs> indie Twitter. 
it's like the strangest feeling. That's so rewarding. Cool. But it, yeah, in such a great way. The way that kids play is very structured and very tied up to how kids learn, especially younger children, mm. you know. I think probably by the time you hit 14 or 15, maybe you don't, you kind of develop the inhibitions that stop you wanting to do that. But like younger children, you can see them playing and you can see them like interacting with games in a way that like adults just don't. As you've said, adults are just very inhibited by what they think are the, the tropes and the structures of that game. And I think TTRPGs are really good for breaking <laughs> breaking that mold. Yeah, at its best, kids are really unselfconscious in their play in a way that I think yeah, yeah. we can all aspire to be as like grounded in the moment and as embodied and as as confident and as fearless, just kind of like making choices. As a sort of five, six year old. It's what yeah. I would generally aspire to be in terms of inhibitions and confidence. Absolutely, yeah. And through all that experience, did you kind of come up with a idea of what kind of games are good for kids to play or is it just more bespoke than that i mean yeah so like on the one hand what we were doing there was very bespoke right like it had elements of larp it had a custom tabletop system we had props we had costumes it was a whole fucking thing yeah on the other hand i think my biggest observation is just that like I don't know, even if I, like, take off my, like, GM for children hat and just keep my, like, educator of children generally hat on, this Victorian notion that children are these, are, like, another species of, like, perfect angels is just, like, children are small people. They are. At the yeah. end of the day. And so I think the, the notion that what kind of games are best for children, look, ultimately, don't ask that question, ask who are the young people that I want to play this game with? Who are these children as individuals? Yeah, yeah. What kind of things are they interested in? What kind of skills or, you know, personality traits do they have? You know, if they're really daring and they're really risk takers, well, then, you know, something in a Blades in the Darkish direction, you know, might really appeal to them. But if they're, you know, a bit shy and a bit hesitant and they prefer to kind of like take their time and think about things, maybe more of a world building game is going to suit them. Yes. Kids are not actually a homogenous mass, and treating them like they are, I think, does them a great disservice. That's fair, yeah. Though I also do think it is really important to be mindful that, like, you know, developmentally, kids and adults are different. Yes. I would say anything that involves abstract resource management, Mm -hmm. hit points, I think, on the scale that Dungeons & Dragons does them, just as numbers on a page are really quite hard for most, like, seven or eight-year-olds. You know, a trick that we always did is we gave them, like, you know, little uh, glass beads, and we gave them one for every hit point they had, and so when they lost hit points, they had to hand them over, and that, you know, that made it tangible in a way that they could really get a handle on it. Yeah. So that's a really good trick. I think that's a good trick as well for um, just, like, playing role-playing games with adults as well, because, like, a lot of people don't actually want to interact with abstract representations of health and vitality (laughs) the same way that uh, lots of other people do. I once played a phenomenal game at a local convention where we were playing, it was like a Vampire the Masquerade one-shot. We were playing a group of ghouls whose masters had all been killed. And at the beginning of the game, we were all given a beer bottle full of red dyed food coloring that was the store of, like, empowered blood that we still had in us. And every time we got hurt and we had to heal ourselves, or every time we wanted to use the, like, limited vampiric powers we had, we had to pour shots out. You know, all of the time that, you know, you'd previously, you know, it would all catch up with you. Right. And that was just a really great way of making making visceral or making immediate 
That's really cool. I like that a lot. The long and the short of this is I think tabletop role-playing games could learn a lot from the ways in which LARPs make their resolution mechanics, if not strictly diegetic, symbolically diegetic. Definitely. Tabletop role-playing games have such a lot to learn from LARP and LARP-like. Vice versa as well, you know? I, I think there's quite yeah. a lot of to borrow a term from <laughs> from LARP, there's quite a lot of bleed between the two at the moment. Yeah. That interchange as well is really interesting. Like there was this, there was this kind of scene a few years ago, which was American Freeform, which is a very kind of crossover between LARP and TTRPG. And like, okay, there's a lot of people who disagree with the nomenclature there because most of the people who are making American Freeform maybe were not from America. It's the kind of medium which I think more game designers should try to emulate rather than just the strict tabletop stuff because it's very interesting. (laughs) I feel so thankful that I sit like right at the intersection of indie tabletop role-playing game design on the one hand. Shout out to John Macon, my good friend who, you know, introduced me to Apocalypse World in 2011 and changed my life. On the one hand, and then like my city is host to the last convention that preserves and is heir to the like long history of like indie LARP convention gaming in Australia. Uh, the Australian freeform movement started there. The Australian systemless movement started there. And so like, I also get to be tapped into all of that and like, that's cool. Draw those things together. It's, it's a, it's a very kind of exciting and rewarding place to be. That sounds fantastic. I feel like we need to reclaim this term American freeform and just like make it just a general <laughs> crossover genre. You know, look, on behalf of uh, the nation of Australia, I do have to point out the use of the word freeform to describe a particular mode of LARP does in fact originate in Australia in 1984 and not in, yeah, no, it doesn't originate in Norway and it doesn't originate in America. We were doing it first, but <laughs> okay, we'll fair let enough. you all borrow it. Uh, I'll allow it. <laughs> That's very generous. Thank you. Let's know our ludology then and uh, give credit where credit is due. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Um, would you like to let us know where we can find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Wildwoods Games. Uh, you can find my games on itch at gamesfromthewildwood.itch.io. You can find uh, Feelings First at feelingsfirst underscore on Twitter. And I think that's that's most of the stuff I've got going on. Fantastic. And again, look out for all of those games because the ones that are already out sound really cool and sound like they will be really cool when they get um, revised. That's the word I'm looking for. Mm. And Feelings First is really cool. You should definitely check that out. It's an excellent podcast. If you don't already listen, go out and listen to the entire back catalogue immediately. And finally, thank you very much for coming on Yes Indeed Pod. Thank you for having me. This has been so lovely. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Luke for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. Next time, we're talking to Dominique Dickey and CJ Linton about Tomorrow on Revelation 3, a tabletop role-playing game about surviving and building community on a hyper-capitalist space station. It's a great-sounding game, and we had a really interesting chat about it, so tune in next time to find out more. This month, I'm thrilled to share with you the relaunch of the Yes Indeed Pod Patreon page at patreon.com slash yesindeedpod. You can back at a variety of levels which get you some neat little rewards like access to our community discord where you can chat to me and some of our past and future guests or join live editing streams and even join an indie book club where you get games that we talk about on the show. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene which will make it a healthy and inclusive space for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly you can always help out by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcasts or by donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. 
Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at YesIndeedPod. That's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. The intro music is by my amazingly talented friend Gemma Hooper, and the outro music and interstitials are from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thank you, Gemma and Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.